to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So we're recording remotely today, but I'm happy to report that uh, Akil has a great microphone plugged in. So we're working on the sound quality here, those of you that uh, review us uh, on that basis. So last time we uh, started to talk about the fallout from the uh, draft opinion in the Dobbs case that was released. And of course, no it surprise, was yeah. it was leaked. Yes, good point. Um, and we talked a little bit about the history of leaking and, uh, and then we talked about the opinion itself and what it said. Of course, it's no surprise that there's been a lot of discussion in the media and the public very interested in this topic. I'm sure you've all been tuning into our podcast to get the straight poop on it. Um, and I think it, uh, it behooves us to, to respond to a lot of these uh, memes that have been emerging. Um, but before that, we have to set the record straight on a crucial aspect of the prior podcast where we perhaps, and by we, I mean not me, <laughs> um, you know, may have misspoken. Uh, so, Akil, why don't you set the record straight for us? Yes, oi, and and I and I like that the idea of straight poop. Okay, yes. that 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 could have been maybe the alternative title for 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 this podcast. Um, you know, it's Marcus Constitution could have been straight poop, and maybe today's episode could be straight poop on the memes. But since we're promising straightness, I have to be straight with you. I completely messed up my filler on the roof. Uh, reference last week. I uh, actually referred to Zeidel. Zeidel, of course, is Tevye's um, firstborn, um, and he. Um, and I was actually talking about the third. I might have even said the youngest or something. There are actually five girls, but the the play, of course, the movie really uh, focuses on the oldest three. So I completely messed up. If this is a Marcus Constitution. Um, and it, uh, it does involve kind of often my take on things. It's possible we're going to come back to Fiddler on the Roof later in this podcast because I want, uh, will tell you a story about, we're going to talk about Neil Katyal. We're going to talk about um, Jeff Rosen, who's Neil's brother-in-law. Uh, we're going to talk about um, actually the, the, the marriage of, of Neil um, and um, Jeff's sister, Joanna, um, and there's a Fiddler on the Roof story in all of that that um, I'll share with the audience if we have a, uh, uh, if it organically comes up. So this was really bad on my part to mess up my Fiddler on the Roof reference. Uh, um, um, mea culpa. Well, I forgive you even though it's not Yom Kippur. Oi, so. <laughs> Okay. And of course, you know, Shame on me for not uh, catching it at the time. All right. Well, yes, here- I actually caught it. You know, I said, oh, my God, I'm not sure it was Zeidel, actually, now that I think about it. Okay. Okay. So, and, of course, that was the only mistake that you have ever, have made, ever made on this podcast or anywhere. Ever. Yes. 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 Um, there was one other time when I, you know, thought I made a mistake, but I actually was only mistaken in thinking that I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. In yes. my life, yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and so the recursive uh, mistake goes. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's get to the, uh, the serious matter here, which is that, um, you know, people are up in arms about the fact that there was a leak, but more about what was actually leaked. And as, as I said, certain statements have been made over and over 
Um, and the re- the readers of these these uh, articles may very well accept them as factual just because they are said so many times and and in so many places. And after all, people turn to places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or Slate, or places like that for authority, for correctness, for information, for analysis, straight poop, for yeah. straight poop. And uh, and look, we need to bring the toilet paper out. So let's uh, let's end that metaphor and and get on to some of these so the first thing that i think that uh we came across that was said over and over again was this notion that by abridging abortion rights or turning them over to the states or invalidating roe and casey whatever you want to call it um this this opinion takes away a right of, of an individual or a right of, mm-hmm. of citizens or a right of Americans, and that that's something that the Supreme Court has never done before. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's very different from cases that establish rights. Mm-hmm. And, and that if you're, when you're looking at overturning precedent, uh, which this purports to do, if, if you're going to do it in a way that takes away a right, that if that itself is unprecedented, then perhaps... It, the court should have much greater pause and should find special circumstances or something just beyond the fact that they believe that the original case was wrongly reasoned or wrongly decided. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the importance of, that's that these writers attach to this uh, conclusion that they've reached. So do you agree with them that where they say that they've that these things are said that they've never taken a right before away before and who who has been saying this? I know. Uh, your, uh, Noah Feldman has, among others, correct? So, Andy, you're absolutely right to mention Noah Feldman very prominently. Um, he was my uh, student, very impressive um, student at that, at Yale Law School. He's a very um, high-profile legal scholar. He's a professor at the Harvard Law School. He has a, um, a, very, pro- he's a very prolific columnist for uh, Bloomberg. He has written many books uh, for a general audience. Um, and some of them I quite like, and others not so much. He was asked to testify by the Senate um, as one of uh, just a handful of academic experts in the first Trump impeachment trials. So what Noah Feldman says people pay attention to, his his most recent book, by the way, Andy, since you and I are Lincoln men, is actually a critique of Lincoln's constitutionalism. It's called Broken Constitution, The Broken Constitution. I quite dislike it, truthfully, and uh, there's a a review out in the New York Review of Books, the most recent issue, by an eminent historian, Jim Oakes. It's a very savagely critical, harshly critical review of, of Noah's book. I actually think um, that the book is very problematic for a bunch of reasons above and beyond what Jim Oakes says. But, okay, so we mentioned Noah Feldman because he's a prominent person, and to my knowledge, he's the first person who um, launched this meme. Maybe other people had, but when Noah said it, that was the first time I took note of it. And he said it several months ago, um, before the oral argument in Dobbs. Um, and Larry Tribe actually picked up on it and echoed it in a, uh, a tweet, I believe, and, and, and maybe elsewhere, or maybe it was actually um, on um, MSNBC. But I, but I remember very soon thereafter, Lawrence Tribe actually saying, yes, this is... Um, will be the first time that a, a right um, that, that the court has recognized will be withdrawn. Um, 
And, um, and more recently, my friend and law school classmate, David Cole, has made a similar point in the Washington Post. Um, and so this meme is out there. And just to make clear, uh, uh, just a little bit more elaboration, Andy, of, of, of your point, the argument is, well, yeah, Plessy, in effect, deviated from Brown. Brown basically renounces Plessy, does not follow the precedent of Plessy, but actually technically doesn't overrule Plessy, but it, it, it comes close, and, and it, it tries to um, put Plessy in a tiny little box, and then eventually um, the Brown uh, vision will officially overrule Plessy in a series of, of, of post-Brown cases. So the argument is, yeah, well, Brown, in effect, overruled Plessy, and, and that was right and a good thing, but here's why that's totally different than overruling um, Roe, the meme goes, the Feldman tribe, David Cole meme, because Plessy ref- you know, failed to recognize a right, a, a, um, in that case a right of equality, and Brown properly recognized the right of equality. But here, the argument goes, you know, overruling Roe would undo a right that's been recognized, a right of of privacy, of reproductive freedom of a certain sort. Oh, and the court has never done that yet. It's overruled precedents in all sorts of ways, but, but only to extend rights or in cases where rights really maybe weren't relevant, a separation of powers issue or a federalism issue or something like that. That's the meme. And it's preposterous. It's not, it's not wrong. It's, it's, it's plainly wrong. It's about as wrong as it's possible to be because every first year law student in constitutional law learns the story of 1937, the so-called switch in time when the New Deal meets the old court um, and the court, um, under pressure from Franklin Roosevelt, who's been re-elected in 1936, basically abandons... um, its earlier jurisprudence, the so-called Lochner era, in which case after case after case, beginning in about 1880, um, and, and now we're talking 50 years later, which is about the same time period as between Plessy and Brown or between Roe and today. So there are case after case after case in the Lochner era using the idea of liberty of contract and the contracts clause and the takings clause and the property idea, using ideas of contract and property, which are individual rights, you see. The court had read these rights very broadly to uh, limit what state and federal governments could do um, to, to um, protect employees, to um, uh, to redistribute downward from wealthy people to to less wealthy people. The court in the Lochner era, the old court, struck down again and again all sorts of regulations um, of of business and um, struck them down in the name of rights, in the name of contract and property. And when Franklin Roosevelt was re-elected resoundingly in 1936 and threatened to pack the court, the court very famously blinked. Now, exactly why it did and the timing of that vis-a-vis court packing, there, there's some academic debate about that, but every law student that learns in her first year that in 1937, the court blinked 
um, and basically started um, upholding government regulation, business regulations of a certain sort that they had invalidated before, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, um, consumer protection laws of a certain sort, um, worker safety laws of a certain sort, began um, upholding government regulations that previously the court had invalidated, here's, and wait for it, in the name of individual rights. Now, yes, those were property rights and contract rights, and here we're dealing with, you know, reproductive rights. You know, those cases, you know, involved the workplace. You know, these cases involve reproductive clinics and um, medical clinics and and the like. But Noah, Larry, David, what what are you talking about that this would be the first time? That's one of the most famous shifts in Supreme Court precedent of all time, Um, and actually Felix Frankfurter, uh, then I believe a professor at Harvard Law School, just as Larry Tribe and and Noah Feldman are professors at Harvard Law School, actually commented, because people said, oh my good, the court is is switching, Um, it's, it's famously called the switch in time. Thomas Reed Powell, another professor at the Harvard Law School, cruelly coined the phrase, the switch in time that saved the nine, punning on a stitch in time saves nine. And, um, and Felix Frankfurter said, oh, the court is caving. It's caving to political pressure of a certain sort. Um, now even a blind man, said Frankfurter, can, you know, can see that the court is you know, in politics. And, and that's one of the most famous episodes in the American constitutional saga. Every first-year law student learns that. And... It was prominently mentioned in the oral argument by uh, Kavanaugh, um, by, definitely by Kavanaugh, maybe also by Alito, and it's in Alito's opinion. And of course, Noah Feldman, in one of his books, Scorpions, um, addresses this era. Very, that's what the book is about. Um, the, the post-New Deal court, the, the, because the prop, Franklin Roosevelt is frustrated. He's won in 1932. He's won sweepingly against um, um, Herbert Hoover, 1932, he takes office. He's got you know strong uh, congressional majorities, and they're passing laws, and they're getting invalidated, Lochner-like, um, based on notions of substantive due process and property and contract and the like. And he gets zero appointments in his first term. So he's the so he's very frustrated that the court is um, uh, undoing. His, his efforts to get America out of the Depression, and he resoundingly wins re-election and threatens court packing, and then the court starts to pivot, and then, and this is where Noah Feldman's story in Scorpion begins, his appointees get on the court. First, Hugo Black, um, who we've talked about m- m- many times on, on this podcast, and, and then later, um, William O. Douglas and Felix Frankfurt himself, whom I mentioned when he was back in, um, uh, in his law professor days, um, Robert Jackson, and others. And Noah tells the story in Scorpions, which I think is a very good book, in fact, and hi- highly readable. I-, I like that one. I don't like The Broken Constitution. I have very mixed ideas about uh, uh, reactions to a book that Noah wrote about James Madison. But I think Scorpions is clearly the best of those three, better than the Madison book and way better than the Broken Constitution book. But that book tells the story of FDR's appointees on the court who all agreed that Lochner should be reversed, that, right, that rights of contract and property should be shrunk. 
okay, should be, um, um, they all agreed on that, but, but later issues arise in the four, 1940s and 50s, and these justices who agreed on undoing Lochner um, begin to disagree when new issues arise. That's the story that Noah Feldman tells in Scorpions, tells, well, so, Noah, how could you forget 1937, you know, or ignore it in your claim that, oh, the courts never overruled precedents in a way that cut back on rights? Now, in all fairness to David Cole, who you mentioned, um, he writes a column for, uh, in the Washington Post, an opinion piece, uh, titled The Alito Opinion Would Be Like Plessy Overturning Brown versus Board. Pretty provocative statement. Um, now, he does... A recognized West Coast Hotel. That's the one of the cases that we're talking about here. West Coast Hotel versus Paris, nineteen thirty-seven. And yes. what he says and is, so he at least talks about it. And Noah just you know um, assumes it away, ignores it. And uh, again, and Larry tried to write a whole article. I just saw a tweet, or I can't remember if it was a tweet or if it was um, on on TV. I, oh, I heard him on TV say say this. I think it was on MSNBC. I think it was with Larry O'Donnell. Um, um, and he, he, he agreed too quickly. But you're right. This is a piece in the Washington Post that my, my friend, and he is my friend, David Cole, my classmate. Uh, um, David Cole was at Yale College um, with me and then at Yale Law School um, with me. And um, because he's responding specifically to the Alito opinion. Um, and um, here's what he's, and, and Alito mentions in his opinion, West Coast Hotel, and here's what David writes about this. Here's what he says on this. He says, Americans today enjoy rights to speech, to vote, to choose who they live with and marry, to exercise religion, to hold property, to privacy, and to equal protection that are far more generous than those recognized at the framing of the Constitution. While the court has whittled away at some of these rights, None of those prior decisions comes close to the tectonic shift that reversing Roe versus Wade would cause. Alito cites West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, a 1937 decision that reversed course on a line of decisions ruling that business owners' liberty of contract invalidated federal and state laws protecting workers and consumers. Parrish took away some rights of business owners, but its real effect was to expand rights protections for millions of Americans subject to exploitation by powerful corporations. So he's acknowledging that actually Parrish did take away some rights of business owners. So he's more careful than Feldman was and maybe than Larry Tribe was in quickly um, agreeing with Feldman. Um, so he's a little more careful uh, and, and um, uh, he, he um, is responding to the Alito opinion, which, of course, does cite West Coast Hotel, so good for him. Parrish took away some rights of business. So I was just say full stop. And, and, and not some. Parrish is, and the switch in time, is invalidating lots and lots of cases in the Lochner era, in effect. Not one or two, but a, a, a whole way of thinking about a contract and property um, uh, rights in, in general, economic rights. Um, but then David tries to sort of say, oh, that was totally different, but its real effect, you know, note the real effect, hmm, was to expand rights protection for millions of Americans subject to exploitation by powerful corporations. So several things. No, it didn't expand rights at all in that none of these cases said government has to protect employees 
from exploitation minimum. It was never the suggestion that there must be minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, um, worker safety laws, consumer protection laws. So, so no, it just expanded government power to decide whether to regulate economic transactions or not. So that's one problem. Where there wasn't expanding rights, it was expanding of individuals, powers of government. And then he says, but who are the rights subject to uh, exploitation by powerful corporations? So at most, it would be rights or protections against private entities. Now, the Constitution, except for the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery, generally doesn't protect rights against private entities. It protects rights against the government. So the classic formulation is government power and individual rights. And under that classic formulation, yes, um, overruling Roe would be adding to government power and restricting individual rights, in this case, a claimed right of property. But that's exactly the same as in 1937 when government power was expanded and various individual rights against government uh, were contracted, in that case, rights of contract and, and property and economic liberty. It's exactly the same thing, except that was maybe a conservative set of rights, property and contract, and this might be thought to be a liberal set of rights, but they don't want to say that's the real difference, liberals versus conservatives, so they're trying to say, oh, it's about rights expansion versus rights protection. Baloney. And now let's just read it one more time, but I'm going to now actually um, change the words just a little bit. Okay, so he says, Parrish's real effect, this 1937 case, the, um, the switch in time, was to expand rights protection for millions of Americans subject to exploitation by powerful corporations. And suppose I said, well, overruling Roe's real effect, Dobbs's real effect, would be to expand rights protection for millions of innocent unborn Americans, or human, innocent unborn humans, subject to extermination by society. It's the same thing, you see. That's not a distinction, David. Surely, you, you, know, you, you must know that, right? This is, this is very misleading. And with that kind of inflammatory language that you just used, let's just <laughs> append to that your frequent uh, statement that you are pro-choice. I actually am, but I can hear and see the argument on the other side. I understand that for Sam Alito and the others in this draft, one of the things that is absolutely different between this case, and we're going to talk about this, and many other cases, is this one involves the intentional um, snuffing out of what they believe, or what they, what they say many Americans believe, to be innocent, unborn human life, long past conception. We're t- you know, um, and, and, and so I hear them. I understand that that's the argument on the other side. And if you're going to be a good lawyer or a good teacher, you have to actually address the argument on the other side rather than assume it away. And as someone who is, you could say, well, Professor Amar, then I don't understand. You think that there, there really is this idea that it's innocent, unborn human life, then why, how can you be so emphatically pro-choice? Um, I'll actually read to you what I, I, I wrote um, and appeared in uh, testimony that I actually gave before the Senate in a Supreme Court confirmation process a few years ago. Um, and this was uh, um, a piece that I actually wrote in a, a newspaper that was published in Maine. We'll put this on the show notes in the Portland Press-Herald on August 24th, 2018. 
um, in, a, in a piece that was really for Susan Collins's constituents and for Susan Collins. I was actually making predictions about what Brett Kavanaugh would do in various areas of law. Here's what I said. Collins cares deeply about women's reproductive rights. So do I. Unborn human life is precious, but pregnancies and potential pregnancies can raise intricate medical and moral complexities. And in this domain, I generally trust women more than I trust government officials. On issues of reproductive choice, I go on to say, there are no guarantees that a future Justice Kavanaugh would rule the same way that Senator Collins might prefer. But that is equally or more true of all other would-be nominees on Trump's long list. If Collins were to sink Kavanaugh, Trump could easily nominate someone else who would, be likely, who would likely be less open to Collins' vision of reproductive rights, but harder for senators to torpedo. Consider, for example, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, an earnest acolyte of Antonin Scalia, with a compelling life story but less personal exposure to liberals and a less distinguished track record. Moderates and liberals should be careful what we wish for. So what I'm saying is I am pro-choice, but I don't assume away you know, the hard argument on the other side, which involves innocent, unborn human life. And that's why um, I'm trying to actually state it in as strong a form as possible so you can see what Alito would obviously say in response to David Cole trying to distinguish this case from 1937. He's saying, what are you talking about? You know, you're saying 1937, yes, it expanded government power, but it was really about protecting you know, rights against corporations, even though there weren't any rights, it was just government power. But here, I could say the same thing. I could say this is really about protecting rights of the unborn and, and, and not against um, a, a mere economic exploitation, but against extinction. Larry, Noah, David, what, what the heck are you talking about? Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992 massively cut back on Roe versus Wade um, and overruled two other cases, actually, the trimester framework of Roe as opposed to the, the viability trigger of Roe, um, and openly overruled um, at least two other post-Roe cases that were all about reproductive rights. What are you talking about? We've already done this in 1992, okay? In this very quadrant, the court cut back. Now, it didn't want to admit it very dramatically. You know, um, it, uh, it said precedent, 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 um, row, 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 even while cutting back on, on precedent and row. But it's, it's, it's astonishing that you could say this, given that the court already tried to make a mid-course correction, but you know, um, for critics, not a big enough one in 1992, in this very quadrant. Well, I think probably they would say that, and David Cole did say, that the court had whittled away at rights, but that was different from a complete you know, uh, withdrawal, as he, as he sees it, of, of rights. So certainly... Okay, so, so, so great, David. So you're completely down, that would mean, with the John Roberts approach of 
um, death by a thousand cuts, you know, keep whittling, um, and we're going to uphold this Mississippi law, but we just won't say Roe is overruled. We'll just say we're moving from 22 weeks to 15 weeks. Oh, and then, you know, in two years, we're going to move from 15 to 12, and then from 12 to 9 or whatever. So I just don't get it at all. That that's, oh, that's totally different. I get it. Um, um, whittling is different. No. Okay. So the next meme out there has been this notion that, uh, and this is, you know, I could see where people are very alarmed when they read this kind of a statement, that other landmark cases uh, establishing a whole host of individual rights uh, and privacy rights and related rights are in jeopardy. That the that this case, so the rationale, that some of the arguments used in this case could be the death knell for certain rights, and that even if this rationale isn't, the court is determined to attack these other rights. Um, and some very prominent uh, commentators have, have spoken out on this. Um, so let's take a look at what some of them have said. Again, there are many articles that we could look at, but if we look at Slate, um, there's an article from Leah Lippman and Steve Vladek uh, titled, The Biggest Lie Conservative Defenders of Alito's Leaked Opinion Are Telling. And what, what uh, they say here, quote from the article, um, Alito's stated reasons for overruling Roe could seemingly be applied to overrule other precedents ranging from Obergefell versus Hodges, which recognized a right to marriage equality, to Lawrence versus Texas, which recognized a fundamental right for intimate relationships between consenting adults, including adults of the same sex, to Griswold versus Connecticut, which recognized a fundamental right to contraception. Okay. Okay, and I call bullshit. Um, first, some background, since yeah, this is America's Constitution and I'm connected to some of these people. Steve is my student, Steve Vladek, who's one of my favorite students. Um, um, in order to graduate from Yale Law School, you need to write one very substantial piece of scholarship. It's called Supervised Analytic Writing, Steve Vladek chose me as his advisor for that, and I supervised his project. I also had him for a course in federal jurisdiction where he was wonderful and lovely. And so I, I would have to look it up, but I think I might have even written his letters of recommendation. And he knows that I wish him well and uh, quite adore him. Um, but this is um, not the straight poop, what he has said. So let's just, um, maybe later we'll talk about Lawrence and Obergefeld, and I am passionate about these cases and protecting them. It's why I actually supported Kavanaugh over Amy Coney Barrett because I thought Kavanaugh would be a much uh, more reliable custodian, guardian of these rights for LGBT folk, Obergefeld and, and Hodges. And just to tell you very briefly why, because he's a Kennedy clerk. Kennedy stepped down Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, um, was, was not ailing. He did not you know, die unexpectedly like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Antonin Scalia. He's choosing to step down in the same way that Breyer... Um, uh, uh, he chose to step down in the same way that Breyer has is, 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 is re, uh, more recently chosen to step down. And he, I think, knows that Kavanaugh is his likely replacement. I think, in fact, I can't prove it, but I, I suspect he may have been asked at some point, and I think he said very nice things about Kavanaugh. Um, and 
he knows what his legacy is. It, um, sent, it, it, it's, it's a very rich um, legacy, but uh, LGBT rights are at the center of Anthony Kennedy's um, legacy. The four major LGBT cases are Anthony, uh, written by Anthony Kennedy, Romer versus Evans, Lawrence v. Texas, uh, Windsor, and Obergefell. Um, so that's his legacy. He cares about his legacy, and I think he's stepping down because he thinks Kavanaugh would be a safe guardian of his legacy. Now, I, th- I think, actually, he probably knows Kavanaugh better than I do. He spent a year, uh, Kavanaugh spent a year working for, for Kennedy, so these were, for me, um, clues and cues about Kavanaugh's likely approach. And, and I'm more nervous, I, I was back then, of uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett because she's a Scalia um, protege. She clerked for Scalia. When my party loses, you know, I voted for Hillary Clinton, but when we lose the presidency, um, as we did in 2016, and we lose the Senate, as we did first in 2014 and then again in 2016, when, when, my, when the other party controls the presidency and the Senate, they're going to be able, in general, to put the person that they want on the court. Um, and my choice is going to be, as a practical matter, a Kennedy protege or a Scalia protege. If those are my choices, I'm going to pick a Kennedy protege, a Kennedy clerk, um, every day of the week. Uh, and um, it's not just that Kennedy wrote these opinions. It's that Scalia wrote screechy dissents in these cases, over-the-top dissents in these cases. Um, all for the, Scalia and Kennedy, they are both um, Catholic, Republicans, Harvard Law School graduates, lower federal court judges put on the court by Ronald Reagan within two years of each other. There are a lot of similarities, but but Kennedy is a California Republican, and I'm a California Democrat, and and Northern California, uh, we're both from Northern California, and he gets gay rights in a way that Scalia doesn't. Okay, so... um, I'll come back to Obergefell and Lawrence. I'm, I'm bracketing them now, not because I don't care about them, but I care about them deeply, and we'll return to them. But, but let me just first talk about Griswold versus Connecticut, because my friend, my student, Steve Vladek, you know, says, gee, under Alito's approach, Griswold is at risk. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? So first, the, when the opinion itself talks about rights that are uh, deeply rooted in um, the American experience, in, in American history and uh, tradition, Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a right of married couples to use contraception um, in their home. And I just want to uh, read once again, I, I think I may have shared this passage with the audience before, um, a, the key language of a traditionalist, um, um, John Marshall Harlan the Younger, um, uh, in the companion case to Griswold, the case called Poe versus Allman. And this, these cases arise out of New Haven, Connecticut. Poe versus Allman involved the town clerk, Tom, I think his first name was Thomas Allman. Allman's son was my next door neighbor, Andy Allman, um, uh, Yale Law School class of 64. So I, I know this stuff like the back of my hand, these, these cases. Here's what Harlan said about Griswold. Conclusive, in my view, is the utter novelty of Connecticut's enactment. Although the federal government in many states have at one time or another had on their book statutes forbidding the distribution of contraceptives, none 
so far as I can find, has made the use of contraceptives a crime. So, and, and we, I mentioned that on the previous episode, I'm re-reading it now, because Griswold is easy and obvious under the Alito framework of deeply rooted. Um, now, if that doesn't convince you, I'm also going to actually tell you about what the people who authored that leaked draft and who thus far it appears um, uh, signed that, um, uh, agreed to that leaked draft, what they said in their confirmation hearings about Griswold. Because the point is, you know, you know, liberal law professors, you're just trying to scare people with boogeymen or something about, oh my God, Griswold is, is at risk. No, there's no major movement to undo Griswold. Roe Every single Republican Party platform for the last 40 years has said, we hate Roe. Roche must go, innocent, unborn human life. There's never been anything like that about Griswold versus Connecticut. Griswold versus Connecticut is 9-0. It's easy and obvious, and, and, and 9-0 includes Sam Alito, don't you see? So let me just actually um, tell you what Sam Alito uh, said in his confirmation hearings. Chairman Specter, well, the Griswold dealt with the right to privacy on contraception for, for married women. Do you agree with that, Alito? I agree that Griswold is now, I think, understood by the Supreme Court as based on the Liberty Clause, the Due Process Clause, the Fifth Amendment, and uh, uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. So you might think, oh, he's being a little mealy-mouthed here. He says, I agree that the court has said something. Okay, um, Specter. Do you agree also with Eisenstadt, which carried forward Griswold to single people? Griswold was about married people, 1965. Eisenstadt said, oh, single people have the same contraceptive rights um, uh, as, as married people. Alito, I do agree with the result in Eisenstadt. I mean, there's no hedging about that at all. And then later on, um, they are talking about Bork, because you see... Um, uh, Specter very famously went after Bork, um, 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 and Bork, you see, thought Griswold was wrong, but not Sam Alito. Okay, um, here's um, Alito. There are issues with respect to which I probably agree with Judge Bork, and there are a number of issues on which I disagree with him. And the most important, and most of the things you just mentioned are points in which I would disagree with him. I. I expressed my views about Griswold earlier this morning. Like, there's no, that's as clear as it's possible to be. I think Griswold is right, says Alito in his confirmation hearings. I think um, Eisenstadt, which goes way beyond Griswold, unmarried people, is right. I disagree with Bork on this. Okay, that's Sam Alito. I think that's an overstatement, but I do think that the Eisenstadt comment is very clear. You know, because on Griswold, as you said, he's a little mealy-mouthed. Then he says, well... I, I agree with Bork on some things. I disagree right, but with him you, on but, others. But, 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 but the but, Eisenstadt comment is unequivocal. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, if you said, well, you, you, you can't have double jeopardy, you say, yeah, but can you have triple jeopardy? So, so you right. know. Eisenstadt if, is a superset of Griswold. Yes, yeah, okay, now. Well, hold um, on, let me just ask you as, as an expert. Is it possible to agree with Eisenstadt and disagree with Griswold? No. Okay, so then that's that. Right. Now, um, uh, let's take John Roberts, whose confirmation hearing was before Alito's. Um, 
And, and you see, on a whole bunch of questions, they duck and bob and weave, and they don't want to commit themselves. We've had previous episodes on the confirmation process, um, you know, our uh, uh, episodes with um, um, my brother Vic on the Tangi Brown-Jackson hearings and all the rest. They will never say that clearly, one way or the other, on a row. They'll say, well, blah, 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 blah. But they don't say, I agree with this, you know, because you can say, well, you, you know, professor, you, they just lie in these things. No, they don't. Um, Susan Collins went around saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that Kavanaugh might think this about Roe. Well, she shouldn't have been because I, because I wrote, you, you know, in her home state, don't be surprised if he's going to um, vote to overrule Roe. But they all are going to because the Republican Party has been saying this for 40 years if you listen to them. Yes, and but they that's different th- from having or saying that we can trust what they say in the confirmation hearings. So, of course... Well, I have, but, but our audience is going to think we can't because of Susan Collins, and I'm saying, no, Susan Collins is wrong about that. You know, listen to what they actually say. You can't show me anything comparably clear, Andy, on Roe versus Wade. They, 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 they never said that. And, in fact, I'm going to read you now what John Roberts said about Griswold, and then he's going to say, here's why I'm willing to talk about Griswold and not willing to talk about other things. So, so I, I, I'm actually giving you the backstory of all of this. And it, Steve, Vladek, you're my student, you're my friend. What you said is absurd, okay? I'm calling bullshit on you because it's absurd to think that Sam Alito or Clarence Thomas um, we'll talk, uh, we're going to talk about it in just a moment, or John Roberts for that matter, although he uh, um, apparently hasn't yet uh, signed on to, to this draft opinion and, 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 uh, uh, and might um, not do so. But let me just t- um, read what um, uh, uh, was said in John Roberts' confirmation hearings about Griswold. Roberts. I agree with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and availability of that. Okay? There's no ambiguity. I agree with that. Okay? And then Roberts goes on to say, because he shuffles and, 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 and does a tap dance when it comes to Roe and all sorts of other things. Oh, I can't talk about that. Might come before the court, blah, blah, blah. So he says, um, uh, I feel comfortable, this is Roberts, commenting on Griswold and the result in Griswold because that does not appear to me to be an area that's going to come before the court again. Okay? It was surprising when it came before the court in 1965, meaning it was like a total weird, you know, outlier law, I think, to many people. The other area, that is Roe, is an area... Um, to quote Justice Ginsburg from her hearings, live with business. Like, Roe is in play, he's saying. There are cases that arise there, so that's an area I do not feel it's appropriate to comment on. I'm not going to talk about Roe, because that could come up. Griswold is settled um, as much as it's possible for anything to ever be. And on settled, um, you actually had um, an interest, you found something interesting from Amy Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation hearings, and then I'll actually tell our audience what um, uh, Clarence Thomas said about um, Griswold and marital privacy in his confirmation hearings. Yes, yeah, so, so uh, in terms of Amy Coney Barrett, first of all, just before we get to that, her comment on uh, Griswold, 
she said that it seems unthinkable that any legislature would pass such a law taking away the right to buy or use contraception. I think the only reason that it's even worth asking that question is to lay a predicate for whether Roe was rightly decided. I think that Griswold is very, 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 very unlikely to go anywhere. <laughs> Does uh, she have enough varies that, like, can you be more clear? Like, it's unthinkable. Of course, you know, Griswold, you know, is, is settled. No, no, no one's thinking ever, in, anywhere in America about undoing that. And then on the question of settled, so it wasn't really settled, but she, this was the super precedent. Okay. So she described super precedents as cases that are so widely agreed upon that no one would ever push for them to be overruled, such as That's Brown. Griswold. That's Griswold. A super precedent because it's so widely agreed upon that no one would think otherwise. And Steve, you know, when you're saying to the contrary, like, you're smarter than that. Come on. And here's you're just trying to scare the children. And here's her comment on, on, on that. She says, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased. But that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. That was That's the quote. such a clear statement, okay? Roe has been deeply contested for 40 years, and that's not true of Griswold, which was an outlier statute at the time because actually a right of marital privacy was deeply rooted in history and tradition, and then Alito says actually even unmarried privacy, you know, Eisenstadt, and, and Robert says, you know, this is not a live issue remotely, and she says it's, un- and, and Amy Coney Barrett says it's unthinkable and very, 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 you know, pr- there probably another, you know, one or two varies. It's like when I call bullshit seven times. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's Clarence Thomas in his confirmation hearings. Quote, my bottom line was that I felt that there was a right of privacy in the Constitution and that the marital right of privacy, of course, is at the core of that. And that was about Griswold. Like, he's as clear as it's possible to be. So that's Alito, who wrote the draft opinion. Um, that's Thomas, who apparently is on board, um, who may very well have assigned Alito to, to, to write the opinion in the first place, as we explained in the last episode. Um, that's uh, Amy Coney Barrett that they're trying to you know, reach with, um, to count to five um, with this draft opinion. That's Roberts, who may or may not you know, be um, reached by this opinion, um, but um, whom, whom they'd love to, to, to join them if they could get him. Why would Sam Alito ever want to be coy about Griswold given that it get, you know, he believes in it, it gets him no votes at all to say, oh, I'm, I'm putting Griswold in play now. Oh, that's going to that's gonna go over well with, with whom? No one. And nevertheless, you know, you get a statement from, let's say, Emily Bazelon writes in the New York Times uh, yesterday, or Thursday, that is, May 5th, and she says the reasoning that, uh, that Justice Alito is using, and this will be a segue to our next uh, sort of meme, she, she, he sa- she says that he says uh, that Justice Alito is arguing that the right to an abortion isn't a protected liberty interest in the Constitution because it's not rooted in the country's history and tradition. And she says um, this, uh, this reasoning would threaten many constitutional rulings the court has made, such as Griswold versus Connecticut, the privacy decision freeing married couples, blah, 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 um, right. that was an underpinning of Roe, she says. 
and Obergefell versus Hodges, the same-sex marriage ruling. For the moment, Justice Alito's draft sharply distinguishes some of these rulings from Roe. But who knows what will happen down the road? Yeah, well, I, I know, and, and I know that sounds arrogant. So, Emily, you actually are my dear friend. Um, you know I give the biggest shout-out imaginable in my book, The Constitution Today, because you are my editor for more of the, the journalistic op-ed pieces in that book. It's a collection of my op-eds than anyone else. So um, if you don't know, I think I know, So, um, and, and please come on the podcast. There's an open invitation, but I'll bet you $100,000, and I'll give you two-to-one odds. Okay? Um, so if you don't know what's going to happen down the road, you know, With I'm Chris you, you're talking about. Griswold, yes. I mean, because it's very, very, Let's very... Let's clarify very, the you know, terms of this bet. It, it, right. It's, it's, it's unlikely. So, you know, um, so w- seriously, this is not even like argument in good faith that, that, that they're actually trying to put Griswold in play. No, they're not. Um, they, um, you're just not hearing them because Griswold does not involve the snuffing out of what many people believe to be innocent, unborn uh, human life, you know, well post uh, conception. Roe invalidated the laws of 49 or 50 states. Um, there's been massive pushback forever on it. One of our two legacy parties has always said for, for the last 40 years, we hate this. None of that's true in Griswold. They've gone out of their way to say, we are not Bork. You know, Bork said silly things about Griswold. Bork was my teacher. He did say silly things about Griswold, but that's not Sam Alito. That's not Clarence Thomas. That's not Amy Coney Barrett. That's not um, John Roberts. And I think Brett Kavanaugh didn't talk about um, even Griswold because he didn't want to get sucked into a whole chain, well, you know, uh, uh, of, of, of other hypotheticals. And so I think he, he may have been, you know, um, um, more cautious about it. But, um, um, I just, it would be astonishing if he actually thought that um, Griswold was wrongly decided. Astonishing. And that's because, Emily, I'm your friend, and I hear you, and I'm trying to figure out where you're coming from, but I also am trying to listen to these guys and figure out where they are coming from and where they're trying to go and where they are not remotely trying to go. And, And discourse will not... America is not going to move forward if we keep utterly mischaracterizing what the other folks are saying and why. So Emily Bazelon may have, you know, found a compatriot in our, our friend Neil Katyal, um, and he, he wrote a piece, um, you know, and he's he's frequently fairly measured, but uh, in this case, he he seemed to buy into this meme a bit as well. So here's here's a quote from his piece in the Washington Post. From the other day, he's talking and, about and the, the title, by the way, and, 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 and the headline, you know, remember, uh, uh, in fact, in the, in the discussion of Neil, who came on the podcast a couple of times, we talked about how um, authors you don't get to write their the, headlines. Yeah. But the right to privacy, not just abortion, is on the chopping block. In the leaked draft opinion, says the, sub, uh, the, the, subtitle, the subtitle, Justice Alito channels Robert Bork's views on Roe. So he's... Uh, echoing uh, some of Emily Bazelon's sentiments where he says in this article, the court's test of deeply rooted traditions could now be used to attack Griswold and much more. Then he says the draft opinion is not unaware of this 
and indeed protests too much in response. We emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right, just as Samuel Alito, Alito writes. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. He reasons that other statutes do not involve the destruction of fetal life, so the facts of other cases would be different. That's true insofar as it goes. Yes, a case on, say, contraception would involve different facts, but different cases always involve different facts. The application of the same legal principles to different facts is an essential part of how law works. And here, the legal principle adopted by the draft opinion whether rights are historically grounded in the traditions of the American people is unfortunately a roadmap to overruling Griswold because it calls into question the right to privacy. That paves the way, in theory, for states to ban the use of birth control. And he goes on to talk about marriage equality. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's bracket marriage equality. So I, our audience knows I love Neil. He's like my third kid brother. But that's silly. That's ridiculous, and it's not just that you haven't read the opinion carefully enough. You haven't paid attention to your brother-in-law, Jeff Rosen, whom we talked about um, when you came on the podcast. So here's another thing that he says, uh, just um, apropos our earlier conversation. He, he mentions Bork, and, and he said, um, you know, Bork railed against a Griswold, calling Griswold unprincipled, and then he says, Bork's ghost lives on in this draft. Okay? No, no, no. Because the deeply rooted idea, for reasons we've already explained, easily supports Griswold. Because Griswold actually involved a law that was um, in tension with the laws of 49 of the other states in 1963, and 65, and frankly, for almost all of American history, for all we know. Um, so, um, and the reason I'm so, you know, dismayed by this is, yes, I've made that point. Um, and I read it last week, and I read it again about John Marshall Harlan and the counting and the numbers. You know where I got that point from? I got that point from one of my most brilliant students ever, Jeff Rosen. He wrote this in a piece in the New Republic um, about Griswold, and I had not noticed that before, um, um, that language arose. So Jeff called it to my attention, and then I've built on it and repeated it again and again and again because I think it's a really important point about Harlan and Griswold and tradition and this whole intellectual line um, and that's why it's so dismaying. Neil, it's not just that you're not paying attention to what, what I've written about Griswold or what Alito actually said about Griswold. The internal logic of deeply rooted does easily support Griswold on the facts. See, Akil building on Jeff. Um, and that's why the fiddler on the roof thing is so interesting, kind of, you know, in, in everything coming together. Because, Neil, when you came on our podcast, you talked about, you know, your deep friendship with Jeff Rosen, how um, actually um, um, he's the one who eventually introduced him, you to his own sister, Joanna, whom, you know, you, you of course, married. Um, and I was at that wedding, and, um, and, and of course, Jeff was too. Um, 
And, um, and I, I think I joked earlier that some folks called it a Hindu wedding. I called it, I preferred Om Shalom. Um, and it began with Neil riding in on a white horse um, in Hindu fashion. And I said, I didn't know who was more uncomfortable, who looked more uncomfortable, Neil or the horse. But it ended. And I think I may have said this in the previous podcast episode when Neil was on. It ended at about 10 p.m. after lots of food and festivity because Jewish weddings are great and Hindu weddings are great. You put them together, oh, you got a lot of food and a lot of fellowship and, and, and festivity. But it ended at about 10 p.m. with Joanna's father, that is um, Neil's father-in-law, that is Jeff Rosen's father, singing Sunrise, Sunset. His daughter was marrying and and, and leaving one household proverbially and and entering another. There was not a dry eye in the house. So that's why it was so embarrassing to me that I actually got my Fiddler on the Roof reference wrong, um, as I I mentioned at the outset of this um, uh, episode. So, Neil, you know I love you, but I do not love this piece. And I'm straight with my friends, you know, I'm, I'm even more straight, you know, with my family and your family to me. But no, this is exactly 100% wrong, full stop. Um, you'll, you're, you know, I, I feel this passionately. But it does lead us into another meme that, uh, that we wanted to discuss, which is this question about, uh, which he quotes here, he says, whether rights are historically grounded in the traditions of the American people, okay, but Alito seems to take it perhaps a step further, at least this is the way that it's been reported, that not just do, does a right have to be historically grounded in the traditions of the American people to be uh, an, an unenumerated right, but it needs to have been so at the time that the 14th Amendment was drafted. So I think a reasonable question to ask is, can we find a prominent example of a case which we believe Sam Alito agrees with and that the majority, in fact, possibly the unanimity of the court uh, agrees with, which protects an unenumerated right and does so about a right that was not in effect at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed. If we could, that would be a refutation to that argument. In one word, I think the answer is loving. Loving versus Virginia was a 1967 case um, affirming a right of uh, people of uh, different races to get married. It struck down Virginia's anti-miscegenation law miscegenation um, was um, a fancy phrase for um, sort of interracial um, uh, relations. And, uh, and it did so basically for a combination of racial equality and liberty, substantive due process, right to marry, um, fundamental rights um, thinking. Uh, and it was opinion by Earl Warren, the same Earl Warren who wrote Brown versus Board of Education back in 1954. Um, now, first, you know, what does 
Sam Alito think about loving? Clarence, what does Clarence Thomas think about loving? What does this leaked draft think about loving? And then let's actually look at the facts of loving and, and see how it relates to um, the Alito deeply rooted um, formulation, which could be read in different ways. So first, I think loving is today bedrock, very, 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 very um, easy and uncontroversial. I'm, of course, quoting Amy, uh, paraphrasing Amy Coney Barrett. It's as rock solid as Griswold. No state is thinking about trying to undo the right of people of different races to get married. No leading politician, even in the reddest of the red states, is, is imagining um, such a thing. It's not to borrow from Chief Justice um, Roberts's um, remarks in his um, uh, confirmation hearings, obviously before he was Chief Justice. It's not a live um, issue uh, of any sort. Um, we can, of course, only uh, t- today, um, there, there, it's um, such a big part, it's just an obvious part of, of, of our fabric and tradition and custom, in, in interracial um, marriage everywhere. Um, we're going to look at interracial marriage as of different dates in American history, but today it's, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's, just, it's, it's part of, it's deeply rooted in America today in our, in our practices. Um, one can only imagine, obviously, what, what Clarence and Ginny Thomas you know, might say um, about this if we ask them. They say, like, what are you talking about? Of course. Um, uh, because Clarence Thomas is black and Ginny Thomas is white and they're uh, very happily married. So I think that's just true of everyone on the court. Obviously, everyone, um, uh, including Sam Alito, um, uh, in this opinion. But what does the opinion itself say? Well, it cites loving, um, and um, and you could say it doesn't, you know, explicitly say. And loving was right and obvious and very, very, very right. But usually, in a Supreme Court. Um, opinion. The default understanding is when something is cited, it's typically cited with approval, at least with implicit approval. Unless there's some reason to think otherwise, um, a, a citation is generally, you know, a, um, you're, it's a positive citation. You're building on something. Um, now, context could indicate otherwise, you know, for, you know, a completely wrong view, see Amar. You know, um, uh, or um, it's it's pretty obvious that the uh, the, the authority being cited, um, authority being a case or an article or a book or what have you, is being cited in order to limit it or distinguish it in some way. But there are references to Loving versus Virginia in this leaked draft, and I think they're implicitly positive references. Now, that's just internal evidence of the opinion itself. But then when I add to it. You know, who these people are, where they're coming from, the broader culture. Of course they agree with Loving versus Virginia. And then the question is, oh, what's the relationship of Loving versus Virginia to this deeply rooted idea, and how should we understand it? Well, one idea, one aspect of deeply rooted is maybe more originalist. Let's look at what the data um, uh, 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 are among states. Let's count states circa 1866 to 68, and that's an originalist-like inquiry into what people of the 14th Amendment thought they were doing and not doing at, at the time. Okay, um, and and if almost all the states at the time had laws prohibiting abortion, you know, and if the 14th Amendment then had been designed to prohibit abortion laws, um, 
um, you would expect people to talk about it. And if they didn't, you'd say, well, all these states had laws prohibiting abortion, and yet those very same states ratified the 14th Amendment, and there was no discussion you know, about how this would be in tension with the abortion laws. And so you might say, gee, that's, that's some evidence that the folks who adopted the 14th Amendment didn't think it was about abortion at all. Um, and that's an originalist way of counting states, and it's one way of maybe thinking about deeply rooted, deeply meaning circa 1866-68, at the time of the 14th Amendment. But there's another way of thinking about deeply rooted that's a little bit more focused on um, evolving American customs and practices, a more traditionalist way of looking um, at, um, at, at counting. And that way... Might, we might focus on the date when the, an opinion is, uh, is, being, is being decided, and a, a case is being decided, the opinion is coming down, or um, today's date, if we're looking back at a past decision and deciding whether to stand by it or to, to move away from it. So let's, let's do that with Loving versus Virginia and the um, interracial marriage um, issue, and, and let's just count states. So at the time that the 14th Amendment was adopted, it actually is true that um, a lot of states prohibited interracial marriage. Um, It is true that a lot of the supporters of the 14th Amendment didn't want to admit that it um, um, prohibited those sorts of bans on interracial marriage. My own view is that it did because it says equal, and these bans uh, on interracial marriage actually were about white supremacy. They weren't equal, and that's that. Um, 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 And equal means equal, and I'm not doing unenumerated rights analysis. I'm doing explicit constitutional rights analysis, and, and on that you don't so much count as you just say, well, what did the word equal mean? Equal meant equal. Um, was Were these miscegenation laws actually equal? No, they weren't. Um, um, now you could say formally they were. Blacks couldn't marry whites, but you know, symmetrically whites couldn't marry blacks. Um, and I say, okay, so they weren't facially unequal. They weren't like the black codes in that respect. You know, whites can be ophthalmologists and blacks can't at all. Whites can um, testify in court, blacks can't at all. Okay, they weren't formally asymmetric. They were formally symmetric. Blacks can't marry whites, but whites can't marry blacks. But their purpose and social meaning and effect was all about white supremacy. So I would say even 1866-68, they're unconstitutional. You know, but, but the audience might say, well, Amar, who cares what you think? You know, what, what's Alito's view on all that? And I might say, Sam Alito wasn't talking about express constitutional rights. He was talking about unenumerated ones. And so this deeply rooted isn't the test for everything. It's the test for unenumerated rights. But if we're just counting... 1866 um, doesn't look great for um, the right of interracial marriage as a privilege or immunity rooted in tradition or, you know, a a substantive due process tradition-based approach. So, um, but it still might be easy and obvious just because equal means equal means equal. What about 1954? Brown versus Board of Education. It's overruling Plessy. What is Plessy? Plessy is this idea of formal symmetry. It's okay. Homer Plessy can't enter the white car. It's true. But Homer Simpson, a white guy, can't enter the black car. So it's symmetric and it's okay. That was Plessy's logic. That's the same logic of miscegenation laws. Oh, the black person can't marry the white person. Oh, but the white person can't marry the black person either. Now, 
Brown actually, in 1954, doesn't overrule Plessy just a full stop. I wish it had, but it didn't. That's how it's often remembered, but it didn't do that. It actually said, oh, Plessy was about transportation. This case is about education. It's different. Why didn't Brown overrule Plessy full stop in 1954? And one of the reasons why, in my view, and I explained this in America's Unwritten Constitution, chapters 4 and 5, um, I think one of the reasons why is actually the miscegenation issue. Because um, at the time of Brown, there was a lot still of social hostility to interracial marriage, especially in the white community, but maybe even uh, in, in the black community in, in, in certain circles. Um, so um, the Brown court was basically saying we were going to have... Um, blacks and whites in elementary schools, sitting side by side um, in classrooms, sorry, and um, um, at the lunch, um, at the cafeteria. And there were a lot of whites who were freaked out by that, and they were worried that if little white girls, their little white girls, um, um, were sitting next to uh, little black boys, or now they're, now they're growing up a little bit, now they're, you know, they're teenage white girls with teenage black boys. And it's not just about black and white, but it's about, um, um, it's gendered. It's about white girls and black boys. It's not about white boys and black girls. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety that this would lead to interracial dating and, and, and maybe interracial marriage and things like that. Um, and the court didn't want to, um, they knew they were going to get a lot of pushback, a backlash for Brown anyway. And I think, and so Brown wasn't basically rooted in accounting approach quite. It was just equal means equal means equal. I think that is the best defense of Brown. Um, but if they got rid of a Plessy across the board, not just in education, um, but in all domains of law, including marriage law, oh, the backlash was going to be even worse. And so Brown actually pulled its punches in 1954. By 1967, and that's now the year of Loving versus Virginia, it's the same Earl Warren, the same guy who writes Brown versus Board of Education, but now in Loving versus Virginia, he's saying actually miscegenation laws have got to go. Um, but as you and I were talking about offline, a lot of things in America have changed between 54 and 67, and certain things have become you know, rather more uh, deeply rooted in um, American culture. You mentioned... Um, guess who's coming to dinner? Which is actually and, no, also 1967, same year. It, it absolutely is. It's Sidney Poitier and Henry Fonda and uh, Kate Hepburn and Jane Fonda, I believe. Um, and in, since you mentioned Sidney Poitier, we have had um, a march on Washington um, um, in which Martin King says that he hopes one day, you know, um, um, Black children and white children, Jews and Gentiles, Catholics and Protestants will join hands and sing in the words of the Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And on that day, actually, black people and white people were joining hands, actually, you know, uh, standing together. The Sidney Poitiers of the world and the Charlton Hestons uh, of the world, um, um, uh, interestingly enough. And... Um, by 19, we had a Civil Rights um, Act of 1964 and a Voting Rights Act of 1965, and, and, and um, we got, right, we're in the middle of the summer of love. Um, um, uh, the world was, was dramatically changing, and that's the moment when um, the Supreme Court actually 
um, strikes down these miscegenation laws, and it does so, as I mentioned, both for racial equality reasons, but also for freedom to marry reasons. Now, um, it also has an interesting counting. So, um, and Andy, I'm gonna uh, um, since uh, you helped me find this um, counting footnote, I'm gonna um, ha- have you uh, share it with our audience. But let me before I do so, and 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 to read to the audience also the substantive due process discussion, which is very short, along with the equality discussion, which is very long. But here's one bit of backstory, because again, your the audience is always getting a mark as constitutional, like my take on all this and my connection to all this. The opinion was largely drafted almost overwhelmingly, by Earl Warren's law clerk that year. You know, because we're talking even now about, well, who, who leaked? You know, was it a law clerk? Was it, you know, someone else? So law clerks are important parts of the process. Earl Warren's law clerk that year was a graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School, who would later go on to become the president of Yale University, um, and who is, um, uh, full disclosure, my dear friend, Ben O. Schmidt. Um, and in the small world department, Benno's nephew, Tom Schmidt, uh, became my research assistant and, and very close protege, and then went on to work for many years with Neil Katyal um, and to co-author articles with Neil in, among other places, the Harvard Law Review. So again, a small world. Benno t- has told me um, that uh, Warren gave him the assignment to, to draft the first draft of Loving vs. Virginia, just as you know, Sam Alito and his law clerks drafted the first draft in Dobbs that Benno basically drafted the whole thing and almost nothing got changed um, by Warren, apparently, or anyone else, and, and it was um, a unanimous 1967 decision, um, except Warren added the last couple of paragraphs, um, part two of the opinion, which pivoted away from pure equal protection toward right to marry, fundamental rights, substantive due process-like analysis. Um, so, um, Andy, um, I, um, I, I'm, I hope you can actually share with the audience the counting that was done in 1967, because by 1967, this right actually was much more um, deeply rooted um, in America than it was in 1866 um, or 1954, for that matter. And, and so if loving is um, um, cited with approval, Implicit, I admit, but approval by the uh, Alito draft. Let's actually look at Loving and see whether it actually fits the rooted in tradition um, approach. Um, But the way in which it fits, because I'm not sure it's rooted in 1866 tradition. I'm not even sure it's it's rooted in 1954 tradition um, history. But it's actually, um, it is uh, um, well established in America in general by 1967, if you look at the data. Yes, so it doesn't have data on the earlier years, but it does say on page six of the opinion that Virginia is now one of 16 states, that would be 16 out of 50, which prohibit and punish marriages on the basis of racial classifications. And then they have a footnote. Um, that actually, With a lot of counting, very careful counting. Yes, and Maryland actually had repealed it, so it was actually 15 uh, when, they, when they consider it, and then they list them. And then they also say that over the 15 years prior to this case, 14 states have repealed laws outlawing interracial marriages. So it was a clear tendency or you know, drift, or more than a drift, really a you know, cascade, towards uh, getting rid of these laws against interracial marriage to the point where 
Virginia is now an outlier uh, relative to the bulk of the states, whereas the, the opposite was true earlier. Right. So um, uh, 15 years, you work back 15 years from um, loving, and that's early 50s, 52. That's when Brown, the first um, oral arguments are, are happening in Brown, 52, 53. So what they're saying is, at the time of Brown, you basically have 30, um, uh, 30 states with laws on the books prohibiting interracial marriage, and now you only have 16. Okay, so we've gone from a majority, you know, um, uh, on one side to a, a strong supermajority on the other side, okay, um, and, and, and that's counting, but it's not counting eight, circa 1866, or even um, it's counting circa 1967. Um, and by the time, of course, of today, you know, every state um, uh, recognizes this. And you can say, yeah, they're forced to by loving, but they're not pushing back against loving. No state is the way the states are pushing back and hard against Roe. Mississippi, Oklahoma, Missouri, Florida, Texas, you know, and, and Louisiana, state after state after state, Kansas. Um, so they're not pushing back against loving. They're not pushing back against Griswold, but they are pushing back against Roe. I want to tell you one more thing about the 16, because if you're going to count, and this is going to be relevant maybe when we also talk about um, Lawrence versus Texas, it's not just law on the books, it's law in action. Among the 16 states that prohibited it, a lot of them basically looked the other way. They said, yeah, um, um, but you can go um, just for a weekend uh, across the border to some other state where it's legal, get married, and then come back. Um, and one of the really important things about the Texas law, which is much more draconian than Mississippi, it's six weeks fetal heartbeat and not 15, is you can walk across the state line, New Mexico, and get a legal abortion and come back. Um, Missouri is threatening your ability to do that, um, but Texas isn't, and Mississippi isn't, and that's a very important limiting principle, um, even if Roe is, is gone, that um, people can still vote with their feet. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how, much, how easily they could do that at the time of loving, because all of these states were contiguous. As you, you know, it's, not so, it's not surprising that there were so many states in the South that, the, uh, the former Confederacy. Yes. yes. So, for example, if you were in and, Florida, and, and I think and I think Warren wants us to notice that it's awkward for him to say that the states are different and the states in the former Confederacy are more suspect or something, but the states in the former Confederacy on race are more suspect. Right. I think you would have had to go to uh, uh, well, you'd have to go to Maryland if you were mm-hmm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. That would be the closest state. Maryland had just repealed its prohibition at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because North and South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi and te- and uh, uh, you know um, Alabama and Louisiana and Arkansas all mm-hmm. had the, and and Texas and Oklahoma and Tennessee, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. they, no, but no of course surprise here. West where Virginia. you'd re- where you'd really want to go is Vegas, mm-hmm. um, um, and and you and I both know you know who who created Vegas, and that's. Mo Green, right. from from <laughs> Godfather Two, is where they tell us that. Okay, yes. you know, yeah. um, uh, so, so you know, but there's no there's no plaque, you know, for for Mo Green, you know. Um, Somebody uh, put a bullet in his eye. <laughs> so Andy and I are Godfather fanatics. Yes, and I got a little ophthalmology reference in there. <laughs> that is an amazing scene, but uh, but we but we digress. Yes. Um, okay. 
So back to loving. So here we are, and we've got um, we have a case which you know appears to be decided based on at least in part, you know, this counting method that to, to demonstrate that there is uh, that it is grounded in the uh, traditions of the American people at that point, but it was not at the time of the Fourteenth Amendment. Or even uh, at the time of Brown, where the court actually hesitated to mm-hmm. take this leap. So to you, and, and, and to me, this seems like a refutation of this argument that Alito is laying down a, uh, a declaration that you can't have an unenumerated right under the, uh, the 14th Amendment. He know, seems such- to, I, look, they all like loving. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no um, uh, interest whatsoever in undoing Loving versus Virginia. And it's cited with implicit approval. And when you read it, it actually does accounting, but it's not accounting only as of um, uh, the, the time of the 14th Amendment. Um, and, of course, today it's, it's not 34 to 16, it's 50 to nothing. Um, and the, and uh, uh, Alito says... Roe, by on, on the other hand, it was you know fifty to nothing against Roe when the case, or forty nine to one against Roe when when the case was decided. And today, there's still lots and lots and lots of pushback against Roe, but not against Loving in the states, not against Loving, not against Griswold. But um, well, yes, but just a moment before we leave that, you just in passing, you know, made another argument there against the notion that that Justice Alito only cares about what the status was at the time of the 14th Amendment, because he makes the argument himself that at the time of Roe, that there were so many laws on the books uh, against abortion. And if that were, that would be completely irrelevant if it were true that what, what matters is only what was in place at the time of the 14th Amendment. So why would he make that argument if in fact this is the doctrine that he, that he is trying to put forth for the future? But let's also, uh, Andy, since you um, uh, um, reminded me of, of, of loving uh, offline when we were uh, preparing uh, for, for this episode, um, why don't you read for our audience, because th- this is the only part of, of one of Earl Warren's most famous opinions ever, Loving versus Virginia. This is apparently, according to Benno, um, the only part of loving that, that Earl Warren himself actually drafted. It's part two. Right. Well, I think it's not just because it's the only part, because it's a very clear statement of, uh, of his attitude towards uh, substantive due process and, and, and equality. So he says, these statutes also deprive the lovings of liberty without due process of law in violation of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The freedom to marry has long been recognized as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. Marriage is one of the, quote, basic civil rights of man, unquote, fundamental to our very existence and survival. And he cites Skinner versus Oklahoma and Maynard versus Hill. To deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes Classification so directly subversive of the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment is surely to deprive all the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. The 14th Amendment requires that the freedom of choice to marry not be restricted by invidious racial discriminations. 
under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. These convictions must be reversed. That's the end of the opinion. Um, again, since this is kind of personal, I told you about Neil's um, um, marriage, you know, and, and Sunrise, Sunset, and Fiddler on the Roof, and, and, and Jeff Rosen's involvement in all that um, via his family and his sister, the bride, um, Joanna. Um, just one little tidbit about my own um, marriage. Um, uh, New Haven actually, um, apparently, for data collection or other purposes required me to identify to, to, to fill out a certain line on the, 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 the marriage license uh, application and it said race you know and, I, and there was a you know, blank I had to fill it in you know um, you know actually like race of you know um, a bride race of groom or race of you know male or female one partner or other I can't remember if it was gendered or not but race race so you know, and I filled it out because you know this is a kind of slightly legalistic thing. So Vanith asked me to do it, and so I just put down human, <laughs> human race. So so much for this notion that uh, this doctrine is being laid down by this decision that something has to be in place at the time of the Fourteenth Amendment in order for it to be considered um, as as a right. So if can we all rest easy then, if we, uh, aside from putting aside the, the effect that people feel that the um, abridgment of abortion rights you know, may have, which many people take very seriously. Um, but putting that aside, can we rest easy about this so-called, uh, you know, the future or the, uh, you know, the slippery slope or, or, or et cetera? Well, for the most part, perhaps, but I think that you've identified uh, an area of the opinion where we know that Justice Alito is hostile or has been hostile to the Obergefell decision. Exactly. And so that's, that's the soft spot. It's not mm-hmm. Griswold. It's not loving. I don't, I, don't, I don't even think it's Lawrence versus Texas, um, which is about criminal prosecution of folks for sodomy. Okay, so, so why is it the soft spot? And... Do we need to be worried? And what, you know, for those of us who support the cases, what might be said on either side? Well, all this we'll be getting into next time. So thank you, Akil. Thank you.